You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are beginning a new novel. This week it is Emma Stonex's The Lamplighters, parts one to four. This is a novel, Herds. In fact, this is the first novel that we uh, had on the show in an interview capacity and have then decided to expand to a full discussion because... I think it really captured the uh, the spirit of things, pun intended, uh-huh. that we've been uh, we've been working towards. No, for sure. I'm excited to see how this piece of uh, of metafictional text, this text with this sort of metafiction angle, will tie into the broader the broader theatre of, uh, of of murder mystery fiction. I, of course, am the one in the hot seat today, so I've only read the first four parts, but I trust you, Flakes. If you've elevated this novel from the the level of interview-worthy to on-the-show-worthy, then clearly this is gold stars all around. Clearly this is something truly special. I really, really enjoyed this book. I want to, I want to, let's just get started with a short summary. (laughs) Basically, this is the story of writer Dan Sharp's investigation into the mysterious disappearance of three men from a lighthouse called The Maiden. Sure. And it deals, uh, (laughs) sure. The, the disappearance happened in 1972. Dan Sharp's story takes place in 1992. And we take an incredible, Incredibly unsteady jump back and forth mm-hmm. between those say, two settings. The like, even just saying this is the story of Dan Sharp's investigation is a little misleading because we seem to spend just as much time seeing from the perspective of the lighthouse keepers in the past how reliable that perspective is. You know, looking mm. into the this this window into the tragic past that I assume is going to come to fruition. You know, because we we have this setup that these three lighthouse keepers who are on this lighthouse. They, they go missing and like the doors are locked from the inside. It's a it's almost like a locked room almost. mystery setup, but they're almost. Uh, <laughs> but there are no bodies at all. You see, that's what's kind of mm. kind of interesting to me. Yeah. We're also in a certain sense lacking our detective yes. because even though we are told that Dan Sharp is writing his book, I want to let you know that when I read through this the first time, these first four chapters the first time, I had forgotten about him. I was just kind of thinking, oh yeah, these these you know these women who are in relationships with these lighthouse keepers because that's kind of what we go through in the first four parts. We meet the three women that were in the lives of these men before they disappeared, um, and I had kind of forgotten that Dan Chubb even existed because he doesn't talk back to them. Right? Well, here's the here's the incredible thing. Yeah. So the novel begins with a flashback to <laughs> yep. Boatman Jory Martin taking a new lighthouse keeper unnamed to replace one of the men who's on the lighthouse. They discover that it's closed, they go for a look, yep. and we have the whole locked room mystery, which we can get into at the the tail end of the show. I like how you're like, here is the crazy thing. Let me tell you when there's so many crazy things in this novel. But yeah, keep going, keep going. But the beautiful thing about the writing is that right from the beginning, we have this setup where everything is described in this almost ambient third person. Yeah. We are seeing things from Jory's perspective, mm-hmm. but from like a camera directly overhead 20 feet. And it feels so alien. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up here is because then when Dan Sharp shows up in the story, we're presented his arrival in a newspaper clipping announcing that he's working on this project. That's it. And then <laughs> That's it, every time he is in a scene with the wives of the three men, these women who were left behind after this incident, every time he is in a scene we are in his perspective and the story is written in second person from the women talking to Dan. So he's never really on the page. No. It no. is 
amazing it's, and I love it so much because it is so uncomfortable. Like we, we so often talk about the importance of the dynamic between the detective and their sidekick yeah. between the Sherlock and the Watson. But in this story, we just, we don't really have them. Mm. Like we, we have a detective to, to focus our attention, but they don't, at least at this point in the story, they don't have a personality. We just know that they've written a bunch of books um, we, we get the titles of those books, lots of sea-themed yeah. stories, it seems, but we, we don't have anything to go off of how he plays into the story, if he's somebody that matters, if we should care about you know his motivations or how he's going to deal with the killer if we find a killer, that sort of thing. Like All the usual questions I would have about like the moralities of the story and how the detective engages with that stuff seems thrown to the wayside. I don't think it's thrown to the wayside, though, because- what happens is that all of the characterization we have of Dan mm. is projection sure. from the women he is interviewing. For sure, for sure. All of them basically say like, oh, you know, you as an author would do this. You as an author would mm. do that. Mm. And even though there yeah. are like metatextual gaps where Dan would maybe respond. Sure. And as someone who's familiar with interviewing people, I can kind of feel maybe what those responses were and kind of like, you know, I get yeah, the impression they're a little no, short and sharp, not trying to lead the witness, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're not actually on the page. Yeah, for sure. And the really clever move that Emma Stone X did is at the end of the first kind of, I guess, interrogation scene with Helen, the chapter ends with Helen saying, after all, you're the writer. And of course, it's to Dan. Yeah. But the way that it comes across the page, because he's been absent in terms of his speech, this entire chapter is wonderful. Yeah. It's a really beautiful kind of balancing acts of a sort that's being played here. Um, because yeah, we, we don't have the, the physical auditory presence of the detective interrogating people. We don't feel the charisma and charm, but, but you're right. You know, that, that sentence of you are the writer, like, you know, what's going on, um, is, is very poignant. Uh, it feels like a stab to the gut almost like, are you paying attention? Mm -hmm. I really am enjoying, uh, the way that there's the story is written. Just to, like bring that up. I know that you've spoken you know a, a lot to me privately about how much you enjoy the kind of lyrical way that particularly the the like flashbacks when oh, we're yeah. seeing the three lighthouse keepers is written mm -hmm. everything is very vivid and we're we're very hyper focused on the specific details of the actions that the characters are taking and their relationships with one another and how there's like tensions on you know on the on the lighthouse that sort of thing i almost said boat but i know it's not a boat even though it kind of feels like it <laughs> we've been uh, <laughs> we've been discussing boats enough i think the interesting thing in that context is even though as you say the lighthouse is the space in the story that's written more lyrically you know we get to hear yeah. the crashing sounds of the sea in the way that the text is delivered but despite being the more poetic mm of the two landscapes that we have portrayed when we get to shore yeah. there's there's less speech which is something that you would normally associate with poetry mm -hmm. like we never abandon that lyricism entirely but the decoration the adornment of the lyricism is so different depending on where we are yeah you know we're basically reading monologues when we're on shore going through the women's thoughts mm. or reading newspaper clippings which doesn't feel as lyrical because it's just a massive wall of text which maybe could be a little bit daunting but in that context where we have these two spaces the the sea and the land mm. it really helps to define 
an identity just in the way that the spaces are written, and I love it. I definitely, kind of small tangent, I definitely felt that with the way that the lighthouse is constantly referred to as, you know, it's an isolated place, um, there's a note made that people, lighthouse keepers prefer to be kept in lighthouses that you cannot see the, the shore from mm-hmm. because you experience a sense of longing. I felt that to be a very, a very kind of sad detail, but definitely one that like resonated. Yeah. And I feel almost that with the, the dialogue that's going back and forth on, on the lighthouse, it's almost as though the characters are trying to fill the silence with something. That's kind of the impression that I, that I got. And that's almost how I feel about the, as you say, the monologues as well, that the, that the, that the women in the story, you know, they go through, they, they're almost trying to fill the, the, the gaps in their lives, the, the gaps in their knowledge with just words. Like this is the monologue that I have prepared and this is what I tell myself so that I don't have to think about what actually happened on the lighthouse or mm. so that I can explain it to people who ask me. And it's really interesting in that context then that the people asking the questions are removed from it. Like they've almost put this protective barrier up between them and the people who come hunting for a story. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's no way that they're, well, I mean, we will see how the novel goes, but (laughs) as it's set up, they won't change their opinions easily, right? Because Mm. they've already set up, this is what happened. It happened years ago. Yeah. Like if you think about that for years and years and years, you'd go mad, you know, it would not be a, you become a detective really is what would happen. Uh, You (laughs) become a, a protagonist of a novel. (laughs) <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they even have those barriers uh, up, like between themselves, between the other women who are involved yes. in it. Well, they they like they go after each other. They're like, I oh, know that Helen. She's tell- telling you all these tall tales again. You shouldn't listen to her. Yeah. Listen to me instead. <laughs> Everyone's like pitted against each other. It's awful, honestly. Yeah. Uh. Oh my goodness, isn't it? Anyhow, I think that will uh, wrap us for this portion of the discussion. We will be back at the end of the show with a breakdown of Herta's best theory for the mystery this week. I'm ready. Before we continue on in the following two weeks to fully explore this wonderful story. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I have been. We'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you. I'm joined on the line by Dr. Tom Van Leer, Associate Professor of Narratology at the University of Sydney and someone who has had me thinking a lot over the past year. Tom, it's so good to have you on the show. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Thank you, Felix. So the first thing I wanted to get into is what your expertise actually is, because studying narratology, obviously, you know, talking about stories all the time on the show, narratology inevitably comes up in various ways. In fact, one of the first discussions we had was about the narratology of some of the rules that have been structured around murder mystery over the years. Um, But I just wanted to kind of begin this by talking about what you actually do, which is largely talking about narratology in how we run our day-to-day lives, the services we use, and how we kind of consume the things around us. Could you kind of just give a little brief rundown on what that is and what you do? Look, narratology is is obviously not as famous as things like psychology or economics, but it's it's a science in its own right. It's the science of how stories change reality. Um, the fact of the matter is, we live our lives as as human story animals, right? We we love stories. We love them. We even see ourselves as living stories. And at the end of the day, you know, you come home, you you share the story of your day with a friend, family, et cetera. And that, because of the choices you make, because of the the angles you take on your own experiences, that has an effect on your listeners. 
And they will, because of that, get a different worldview as a result of the way you tell your story. Yeah, I think the really exciting thing coming into this book is that part of the setup of this book is that it tells two stories. One is the story of three men who disappeared from a lighthouse, and the other, which is as when we spoke to Emma Stonex, the author earlier this year, was arguably the more important story, was the story of the people that were left behind, which in murder mystery and crime fiction is something that is not often disregarded, but often is kind of the subtext rather than the text. And I thought it was really interesting the way that this book kind of flipped that narrative on its head and made it about the people that were left behind. In terms of narratology, you know, how do we avoid telling stories without forgetting the important people behind it? Why is it important to still have the humanity in the stories we tell, even if we're there for the guts and glory of the murder? Well, look, the... The way a story works is, is through basic three main ingredients. Now, a good story that, that really draws you in, that really transports you, as we call it, does three things. First of all, it creates an empathy for you with a certain narrative character. Right? You start to feel as if you are that person. And then as a result of that, you start to imagine the things in the book, right? So if you're reading a book, you, know, you, you can see it in your mind's eye what's going on. And then the third thing that happens is then you lose kind of track of your own reality, your own personality, and you start to adopt the thoughts, the feelings, the beliefs of those characters. So if we ignore certain characters in stories, that means that we actually ignore a large part of the possible thoughts, feelings, beliefs that are actually coming through that story and that can have an impact on you. So you, you kind of get like a, a poor, you know, a poor result. Yeah, it's like, I guess, almost, you know, reading a dictionary and picking only one definition from a word that has many <laughs> in some ways. You know, yeah. you still get a part of the truth, but not everything that's there, not the full context. And I think that that was something that was really exciting getting into this book, particularly uh, in the way that we use our protagonist, Dan Sharp. One line that really excited me in this book is after a chapter that is written in second person addressed to Dan Sharp, but it's written in such a way that it feels like the character is speaking to you, the reader, it ends with, after all, you're the author, which obviously being the reader of the text is in some ways untrue. But, you know, how do we still have agency over the stories that we read? And why is that line about us, you know, after all, you're the author, still relevant in something that is, you know, just being consumed? Oh, it's, it's incredibly relevant. And, uh, you know, I think it was in the 80s, a French philosopher, De Certeau, he, he used to say, look, a, a book that's finished, that's written by its author, is like, it's like an apartment that hasn't been lived in. Sure, it's been built, right? There's been builders that put the building up and you know, there might even be some furniture in there, but there's nobody that's living in there. Only the moment that somebody actually enters that apartment and makes it their own, does it become a lived-in place, does it become a home, right? Now, it's the same with the book. You know, just because an author has written a book doesn't mean that that book has come alive. We all have a different interpretation of the exact same book. Everybody in the world can read the exact same book and we will all have a different story about it. So that is where a, a, a reader is definitely also an author because you imagine things, you make choices while going through the text. Yeah, I think choice is a really interesting word there because in a lot of ways in traditional fiction, as opposed to like choose your own adventure fiction or interactive fiction, 
choice is something that is, you know, I guess explicitly taken away from us, but the way that you phrase that there makes it seem like it being taken away from us never really removes it because we still have that image of how we can project the characters in our head, even in cinema, where we see things on a screen, where we have this, you know, director's vision of how things look, we still have to picture what's out of frame. We still have to understand the scenes that we're not being shown explicitly. I guess, you know, is there anything over the course of your studies that maybe people might not expect from that relationship, that choice you have in predefined media? Oh, yeah. Look, it's a matter of degree more than anything else. Sure, there's now a lot of talk about interactive media and you can sort of make, you know, explicitly make your own story, right? But, But it's always been, the agency has always been with the reader to some extent. And there is actually um, some research coming uh, that's come out not that long ago that looked into you know how people have actually dealt with Netflix, for example, right? Um, so binging is kind of the thing that we apparently all do, and of course, a, a good lockdown uh, never go to waste, you know, to binge, <laughs> right? But but actually, what 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 these author uh, these researchers found out is that what comes out of a, a lot of a lot of strategies that people bring to binging is is a huge diversity so some people are very classic in a way and uh, they they just watch from a to z they focus on the tv program and you know they go with it others would um watch a series but then have the book that the series is based on right next to the tv and actually look things up and pause and then read a little bit and then go back to the tv show some others go straight to the end first watch the ending and then watch the beginning which is something of course that you can also do with the book and there are people that, do that. crazy people but you know what i i accept it exists <laughs> it does happen <laughs> So yeah, we do we do have choice, and people do actually use the choices that they that they can make. the The chronology is is not a given. A story is by definition a, an edited version of the truth of what has actually happened. So you know, just by mixing things about and changing the chronology, you can make things more interesting for yourself. Well, yeah, that's one really exciting thing about this book is because we have these two parallel stories in the lamplighters of the time that the disappearance actually happened as opposed to the time when the people are dealing with the fallout, is we get to see those two parts simultaneously. The thing that I thought was really interesting that has been one of my favorite parts of this book and why it's been one of my favorite books of the year is because in the process of doing so, Emma seems to make things as uncomfortable as possible. You know, the the perspective shifts always catch you a little off guard. Things are written in a way that feels intentionally a little bit weird. Is there a value to making your audience uncomfortable in telling them a story, or is that just me having weird tastes? Oh no 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 no! I think you're you're well. It might be weird, but it's, <laughs> I appreciate the honesty. It's also, it's, you know, people love to uh, to work for a book. That's, it, it might sound counterintuitive. Because You're preaching kinda... to the choir with that statement, but do go on. <laughs> well, we do sort of, we do take a, we pick up a book to relax, right? Mm. So you kind of, you know, it doesn't make any sense that you want to work for it. But because you, you, you kind of figure things out and you sort of crack the puzzle, what you create is, is positive endorphins. So that makes you want to have more of it. And I guess the last thing I wanted to ask before we kind of leave off today, Tom, is what do you think the big choice you made in telling this narrative to me was? Is there something that I should understand about the way you communicated these ideas that will change my thoughts on how you said them? <laughs> well, um, 
I basically did everything wrong that you should do. <laughs> so normally, <laughs> if you want to tell a good story, you actually start with a big climax and then you try to make people figure out how did you get to that point, right? Mm-hmm. I, I kind of gave you the answers at the very beginning. I said, look, there's three ingredients. These are the three ingredients. So I kind of gave it all away <laughs> at the very beginning. Yeah, and it, it was all about, you know, trusting that the value of the information you gave me would be enough to keep me here. And I'm still here, yeah. Tom. So I think you've <laughs> succeeded. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been a pleasure speaking with you again. And we will, of course, have links up on the podcast if people want to find out more about your work. Thanks. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Emma Stonex's The Lamplighters, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are discussing Emma Stonex's The Lamplighters, parts one to four. Herds is in the hot seat. I am uh, more of a veteran than I usually am when we get to these books, Herds. I've had months to stop and think about my relationship and my feelings with this story where normally I only have a a week or two. And, you know, it feels like coming home. I love being on the sea with Emma Stonex. Uh, as my my mind is abused by the horrible, horrible turmoil that she puts us through. I mean, it feels uncomfortable and isolated and scary being out being out on this lighthouse with you, Flex, trying to solve a murder <laughs> mystery. You know, we got our oil lamp on the table and our you know our, our tea and biscuits. Um, but yeah, let's hope we don't murder each other by the end. Mm-hmm. No, I'm I'm excited to hear you talk more about it because I feel like I've been I've been rambling and going on and on this episode. But maybe maybe we'll get to hear your true real feelings <laughs> as we go forward because I'd love to hear them. I I have to tell you that going into this this solution here, I I I have something that I like. I feel like I know what's going on. You know, I feel like I'm I'm ready to solve things. That's good. That's good. But I I'm looking at my notes here and I need to let you know that I made these notes. Like far too long ago. Like I, I read the first full part of this before we began the the Magpie Murders mm-hmm. with with Andrew Popel, which was excellent. Yeah, we had a, had a bit of a a, a scheduling catastrophe that uh, led to those few weeks. That's okay. I'm not too worried about that. We can, we can handle mixing stuff around. But I need to let you know that uh, as great as my theory is this week, my my notes are rambly and hyper specific and strange. So I'm 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 excited. That's to- what I love to. Hear. I mean, it's perfect for this book. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm excited. For- so anyway, I have uh, I have now my real theory about the the flesh and blood. Things that are going on in this mystery. Flex. That's what I like to hear. Let's quickly walk yeah. through, though, the locked room that we are presented with. Jory Martin and a couple of other workers for Trident, the company that runs the lighthouses in this particular portion. Uh, try of the UK. three, three, three lighthouse yes, keepers. Yes, very clever, and three, three oh, lighthouses that go. they look after as well. Here we okay. go. So we we find that the the door is locked from the inside with a big metal bar. The kitchen. Uh, they come up, there's a couple of oddities there, like the table is yeah, laid well, for two people. I was going to say, the big thing is that they're ex- apparently expecting only two people for tea when there are supposed to be three people on, on the lighthouse. So that's exciting. The uh, the clock on the wall is stopped at 8.45 a.m. or p.m. We don't know. Then the seventh floor is where the next oddity occurs. We have living room. three yeah. sofas around a TV, pretty normal, except that one of them, the uh, principal keeper's chair, has a partially drunk... <laughs> It seems a cup of cold tea on the floor in front of it. It's just a locked room with no bodies in it. And look, who knows? Maybe 
maybe it was those those birds that show up. There are three birds that show up as white birds. Maybe mm-hmm. they just locked the door from the inside and then transformed and flew off. It's the it's the most straightforward explanation we have, really. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Anyway, let's get into the real theory here. There is one thing I want to I want to say to you before. Yeah, we what is it? What what this is this is a story my... of uh, of three men who went missing in impossible circumstances. It, it is, but don't worry, I, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation. There's a perfectly sure reasonable explanation, and yeah, as we as we've been over. But I'm going to set you a challenge here today, Herds. Uh-huh, sure. Sure. I need you with evidence Uh to explain this this week with ghosts. Ghosts? To earn your point. There will be no reasonable theories this week on the show. Are you mad? We are dealing with a ghost story and I need to know where the foreshadowing is for the ghosts having done it. You know what? That's crazy, but I'm pretty sure I can can probably throw something down here. Sure. I mean- I'm sorry. I'm sorry to drop this on you like this, Herds, but- (laughs) We have to have some stake, I some challenge. Some challenge. Ghost is the challenge, which, I mean, we're already flying in the face of, uh, of Nox here uh, uh, with supernatural events occurring if there that's are ghosts true. involved, but that's okay. Look, first off, I actually don't mind the theory of them all turning into birds and flying away. I feel like that's pretty reasonable, <laughs> but uh, I'm looking through my my detailed notes here and let me let me tell you what I can see here. So there is, uh, there's, there's a number of clues, as you mentioned, like the fact that there's, there's two places set when there are three lighthouse keepers. So clearly- Someone is not in a fit state to to have a meal. Oh. Possibly, possibly dead. Possibly deceased already. Possibly you know already translucent floating. Yes, you know what happens when people die? They get turned into ghosts. Of course. Possibly in the shape of something silver. Because in this story, Flex, there are many times when characters refer to silver beings. Mm-hmm. I think that silver means death. I think that if you see something silver, it means you're going to die. Things that are too pretty to to be real are often deadly, Flex. That's just oh, how it I works. I see, I see. That's what this story is about. Uh, it's about things that are too good to be true and and men getting caught up in it. That's how this works. That's why <laughs> their relationships are going to kill them. That's how this is going to end up. That's like the real truth uh, about this. You, are you, hold on. You. Are you suggesting that as well as there being ghosts, that the women on shore rode that boat out to the Maiden Lighthouse and killed <laughs> no, their husbands, no, turning them no. into ghosts? That would be great. That would be great, but I don't think that's where this is going. No, I, I think that they're, they're like destroyed sadness and like tragic- you know, misery is too real for this to be uh, uh, the the women did it story. Okay, good. Which, good. Which yeah, I was going to say, it was a very offensive that theory. Yeah, that would be a very <laughs> offensive theory. I'm glad I didn't come up with that yeah, one. Yeah, I'm glad you um, didn't. But- <laughs> glad, glad the noose is glad on my I neck. Didn't. Yeah, I'm okay with that. You can have that noose and I'll, I'll help you tie it up. Anyway, so... <laughs> Anyway, speaking of tying things up, let's say that one of them, uh, let, let's let's throw one out there. Who was, who was Helen's husband? That was Arthur Black. That is correct. So let's say that uh, Arthur Black uh, was was killed by Vincent Bourne, whether by accident or on purpose. I'm going to say accident. Uh, and then Arthur Black became an avenging ghost. That's just, that's the premise here. That's the premise of the theory. Now, we know that ghosts need to manifest themselves. They can't strike without first, you know, delivering fear into their targets. And we know that the clocks are stopped at 8.45. Do you know, Flex, that 8.45 is just before 9 o'clock? And did you know that there are nine floors on the lighthouse? Therefore, the deaths of the final two happen just before nighttime. And you might be asking, well, but wouldn't somebody have noticed that the lighthouse, like light wasn't working during the night if they were killed just before they could turn on? Ghosts. 
I mean, obviously, that that is the one thing that ghosts are known to do is that they just walk through a light and it turns off. That's like, exactly it. That's exactly it. This in. is all making sense to me. So on. No, it's on. They turn the lights on. Oh, so what happens is, to, to recap, Arthur Black dies tragically at the hands of Vincent Bourne. And Vincent's like, oh, no. What if I get caught for killing someone again? That would be very bad. And he's like, oh, maybe I should kill Bill. And then, spoilers for Kill Bill. Uh, and then... <laughs> And Arthur Black makes the clock stop. And he's like, oh, the clocks are stopping. He haunts the place, basically. He haunts the place. But he puts everything back at the end because he's a nice ghost. Um, and it drives Vincent uh, and Bill into, into conflict. And, mm-hmm. and, and then the ghost possesses Vincent and makes him, makes him kill Bill. Yep. Spoilers. And then, and, then there are, and then there are two ghosts. Spoilers. But the final person needs to lock the lighthouse on the inside and also have their body not be discovered. And I, if I had to put a, a guess on there for this week, uh, I think that they jumped and they just they just cleared it. Let's just say if if I was on a on a lighthouse with you and a friend, and that friend went missing, I'd be like, Felix, what what happened to our friend? Did you did you kill him? Because I know you've been guilty of crimes in the past. Are you also going to kill me? Hold I better on. kill you first. What are, what are you accusing me of here, sir? I don't want to say. I don't think I can say in this particular. Yeah, circumstance, you don't want to say. You don't want to. You don't want to uh, mention that on air. That's fair enough. No, fair I enough. think I, that incriminates me too. So I, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to speak good. of it. Such speaking things. of incriminating anyway. evidence, next week on the show we will be covering parts five to eight of the Lamplighters. It's a nice even divide in this story, fortunately, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did, Herds. I'm enjoying myself so far. I'm looking forward to things getting crazy. Crazier. More silver, please. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Death of the Reader. We will see you next week, as I said, parts five to eight of Emma Stone X's The Lamplighters. Hope you get the chance to read along with us for this one because it is lots of fun, and I hope that you enjoy being just as at sea as, uh, as I do in this novel. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3, and we'll see you next time.